Well, let's open together again. If you have a Bible, take a pew Bible, follow along on your phone if necessary, but let's open again to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. This is uh, our last time, at least this year, in uh, 1 Corinthians. We're, uh, we'll pick back up in our study after the holidays. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 13 um, is our passage. In our study, we've, we've reached the point where the apostle now turns to address how the Corinthians had, had turned against him. There were divisions and rivalries in the church, we know that, we've been considering that week after week, but it was particularly around the leadership, and, and now we've seen that, that Paul himself um, was the object of a lot of their criticism, and a lot of their judgmentalism. And last week we saw in the first part of this chapter, Paul responds to that by kind of re, um, reasserting a leader's commission before God, and his calling, and how and we be careful not to judge before the last day. The last day, God's judgment will put all things right. But here, this week, he kind of really turns to kind of put his finger on the sore, as it were. Poke them a little bit. He definitely pokes them. He definitely kind of pokes a finger in their eye, maybe. He kind of passionately illustrates that pride is at the root of their misconduct. And... With just kind of just this sarcastic ridicule, he calls them, in the sense, to reevaluate things on the basis of the cross rather than the wisdom and ways of this world. So that's what we see here this morning. Let's pick up uh, in verse six. And remember, brethren, this is God's word. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and still are, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Amen. This is God's word. Would you bow with me in prayer again? Father, we, Lord, we're reminded again that you oppose the proud, but, but that you promise to give grace to the humble. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to humble us. 
We pray that you would bring to light from this passage the pride of our own hearts, that we might forsake it and find grace. Help us to receive this word with meekness for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of Martin Luther's most enduring kind of theological emphasis in his writings was his famous disputation or, um, where he contrasts the theology of glory with the theology of the cross. Have you heard those terms before? Theology of glory, theology of the cross. If you haven't, um, I encourage you to Google Martin Luther and those terms and look it up. It, it's, it's, it's a piercing call to, to radically reevaluate our understanding of redemption. In the Christian life. But for our sake today, I bring it up because Luther's framework really helps us understand the situation here in Corinth. For Luther, in our sinfulness, he wrote, we naturally adopt what he calls a theology of glory. A theology of glory represents our sinful tendency to seek God through human achievements and self-righteousness. But it also... Uh, consists or considers that outward and worldly achievements and blessings are proof of God's approval and favor. In this sense, if we say a theology of glory, theology of glory centers upon our works, our strength, our success, our merit, our power in the Christian life, and a God who favors the strong and rewards human merit. Another way of looking at it might be that a theology of glory assumes that there is a basic continuity between the way the world works and the way that God works. How do you get ahead in the world? Who is it that survives and wins in the end? So often it's the strong, it's the mighty, it's the wise, it's the su successful, the powerful. So if strength in human effort and human wisdom achieve great things on earth, a theology of glory assumes that this is true on the spiritual plane as well. Of course, Luther was writing in response to the Catholic Church and the medieval church, but it's no less applicable to other perspectives in our day. It's a man-centeredness and a way of worldliness, looking at the world as worldliness in, uh, through worldliness. But in contrast to the theology of glory, he also wrote about the theology of the cross. And he argues that God did not choose to save or follow the theology of glory and redemption. God actually chose to save and reveal himself in ways directly opposed to this human glory. Jesus Christ did not come as a great hero king, slaying his enemies, establishing a mighty physical kingdom on earth and converting people at the edge of the sword. Christ came to earth as a baby. He was laid in a manger. Even from the very beginning of his life, he's kind of on the run, as it were, running for his life from Herod, who was trying to kill him. He came as a man of sorrows. He came as a man... Scriptures say he had no desirable form or majesty in his appearance. He had nowhere to lay his head. And he came in weakness and he came in shame and he died on the cross like a criminal. 
So Luther said this is the theology of the cross. And what it means is that if this is the path our Savior walked, this is what we are called to walk as well. We are called to take up our cross and follow Him. And so often the Christian life is, is the life of humility, of suffering, of persecution, of, of weakness. And all of that confounds human wisdom and expectations. Of course, this is also the theme, if you were here earlier this year, when we considered the Beatitudes. And we read Luke's version of that earlier in our service. Who are the blessed? It's those who are poor in spirit and mourn and are meek and hunger and thirst after righteousness and are persecuted for Christ's sake. That's the theology of the cross. And so, in this respect, there's no doubt that here in 1 Corinthians, there is a theology of glory and a theology of of the cross at work. Because the Corinthians had a very strong theology of glory. They favored the wise. They favored the strong. They favored the mighty. They favored the eloquent. They favored what brought honor and esteem in that culture. What was looked upon highly and valued and By extension, then, they despised and looked down upon the weak, the lowly, the humble, the persecuted. Well, if you really love God, all these problems wouldn't be happening in your life. There's something wrong with you that's leading to this. It's Job's friends all over again. They had this triumphant view of the Christian life and it clashed with the theology of the cross. And so right here, Paul, he'd had enough. After, you know, many chapters of giving hints about their worldly wisdom and the the worldly ideals that were wrecking the church, here he just kind of, in a sense, he vents, He, he goes off, he kind of blatantly exposes their theology of glory for just how wrong it is. There's an element of sarcasm here. There's an element of supreme irony, of of ridicule, as he contrasts the the high assumptions of the Corinthians with the the reality of the weak and beggarly apostles. He's like, don't you see how ridiculous this is? But for our purposes today, this passage serves as yet another reminder that when Christ calls us to follow him, He calls us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. Christianity 101, the call of the gospel means the end of you. It is the end of your control and your lordship over your own life. And it is a call to follow and if necessary, suffer and if necessary, die for the sake of the gospel and the glory of his name. So in this respect, this calls us to reevaluate things according to the theology of the cross and see that our only and ultimate hope lies in the grace of God and what he has set before us in this path of faithfulness that often includes suffering. So as we break down our passage today, we're going to do three points as normal. Um, Let me just point out, though, that um, the first point uh, kind of comes at the beginning in the sense that Paul, like he starts with the application. He starts with the point that he wants to make. um, And then he kind of illustrates how they weren't getting it. 
And so just keep that in mind is that the first point really is the point and the second and third point are um, basically showing how they're not getting the point. And so um, that's how he works backwards and we will in some respect as well. But three points today, theology of grace, theology of glory, and the theology of the cross. Grace, glory, and by that I mean human glory, cross. So let's think about this theology of grace. And this is how Paul sets the stage in verses 6 and 7, if you'll look at them again with me. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. You see, in the last few chapters, Paul hasn't called out the specific troublemakers by name. He's spoken by way of analogy, really, earlier when he said, some say I'm of Paul, and some say I'm of Cephas, and some say I'm of Christ. Um, he was using that as an example of what they were doing. He wasn't naming names. And so he, he clears that up kind of right here where he says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos. In other words, I've been using myself and Apollos as illustrations and examples of what true leadership should look like, rather than calling out your leaders for their specific error. I want you to look at us, our planting and watering, as we saw in chapter 3, our stewarding the mysteries of God, our, our being servants in the household of God. I want you to look at us and these things as a faithful example to you, to follow so that you might learn from us so that you might follow our example so i've applied these things to me and my uh, apollos for your example but i want you to learn two things he says here me using this example is to illustrate two important truths that you may not go beyond what is written and that may none of you may be puffed up taking these kind of one at a time he wants them to learn first to not go beyond what is written. Of course, what does that mean? That's a statement kind of uh, emphasizing the centrality of the written word of God. There is a lot of speculation on what exactly this means, but every time that Paul uses or refers to what is written, it refers to the scriptures, most specifically the Old Testament. So we should view this in a sense of Paul saying, look, you need to turn away from the gurus of this world, from the opinions of the world, and you need a higher devotion to God's word. That's why me and Apollos have been planting and watering God's word. That's why we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Our example teaches you to cling tightly to God's word and not to go beyond what is written. So, in this respect, leaders and the church as a whole are called to, to center their understanding of, and our understanding of a church, of leadership, of ministry, closely around the Word of God. We need to recognize the sufficiency of Scripture for the ministry and the life of the church. And brother, I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything new to you. I think you, you know that. Uh, not only that, but 
This is something that we've come back to again and again, even throughout this series in 1 Corinthians. Right? We, we, again and again, preaching and teaching and leadership and ministry revolve around the Word of God. The role of pastors and leaders in the church. We, we don't take our cues from, from TED Talks and, and you know, successful leadership in the business world or even a, an entrepreneur or a community organizer. Our understanding of leadership in the church, of the pastoral ministry, of, of their job and, and of the church's kind of purpose comes from the Word of God. This is what it means not to go beyond what is written. Part of what was tearing the church up, part of what tears up churches in our day as well, is when Scripture takes a back seat. Right? In the life of the church. And this can happen openly, it can happen blatantly, the, the liberal, the mainline churches. Right? Scripture is a token document to them. It means nothing. But it can also happen more subtly in conservative churches. It can happen by um, kind of implicitly as well. Maybe not openly denying the word, but turning to other things, where other things take a higher priority than the ministry of the word. So Paul is saying, don't go beyond what is written. Don't you know that we have everything we need to guide and direct the church in the word of God? We have everything that we need. And again, I... I don't think this is new to you, but this is something that even in our day, even in conservative churches, often struggle with. The life of the church revolves around something else. Whether it be programs, whether it be community events, whether it be other activities, um, other forms of fellowship where the Word isn't present. Do not go beyond what is written. And the subtle warning in this, too, is don't go beyond what is written because when you go beyond what is written, you have divisions and rivalries that come up in the church. That's the second thing he says here. You may learn this, but also that you may be learned not to be puffed up against one another. See, there's a relation between these two things. Instead of the word being the standard in the church, everybody was bringing their own opinions. And what do you think that led to? Chaos, disorder, division, rivalry. I mean, look at, look at politics in our day, right? Um, this isn't a political commentary, uh, maybe just more of my opinion, but I'm going to say it in the sense of when we move beyond our founding documents as a nation, you know, our Constitution... Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. When we move beyond that, it becomes more of a, a living document and we reinterpret it in light of modern things. We lose kind of an, an objective standard of law. And chaos ensues. Insanity. Rivalry. The Constitution can now mean, oh, this supports a, a woman's right to kill her unborn baby. What? No. Again, I'm not trying to get off on politics. I'm just the the point is is that you know we need a standard. A standard is the grounds of our unity, whether we're talking about it in politics, whether we're talking about it in the church. And so the Corinthians they had lost the standard, 
or they had suddenly replaced it with other things. And when that happens, start fighting with each other. It becomes your opinion against my opinion. And this is what Paul speaks of when he says puffed up. That means pride. It means self-centeredness. It means arrogance. It means looking down upon others. I'm better than you. I'm wiser than you. I'm more gifted than you. I'm more mature than you. I'm more serious than you. I'm more holy than you. I'm more knowledgeable than you. Or, or either that or my favorite preacher is, and you all need to listen to him. We live vicariously through them. That's why Paul later will write 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the love chapter. Love, love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy does not boast. He wasn't writing a wedding sermon, FYI. <laughs> that chapter is a rebuke. It's like going to the basics of the Christian life, the most fundamental things that children of the faith should know. And he's saying, this is everything that you are not. In their pride, they have become puffed up against one another. But let me ask you, what is the remedy to pride? What is it in God's economy, a theological reality in God's economy, that strikes a death blow to all human pride? Grace. Grace. Look at verse 7. For who sees anything different than you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We'll see later in the, in the book. This is a tremendously spiritually gifted church. But they saw their gifts, their wisdom, their strength, whether it was in themselves or in their favorite leader. They didn't see them as gifts. They didn't see them as given for the common good of the church. They saw them as status symbols. Means to exalt themselves over others means to get what they wanted out of the church or out of the Christian life. They saw them perhaps as well as things that they deserved. Well, I have been so strict with my life and with my spiritual disciplines and with my pursuit of holiness that God has blessed me. And so, since you experience hardship, so that since you don't experience this great, tremendous oratory or rhetoric or wisdom that I have, it's because there's something that you haven't done or there's sin in your life. That's what's going on here. This is a theology of glory at work. They'd act like they, they'd earned their gifts rather than they had received them from the Lord. And so Paul calls them back to the fundamentals of grace. To paraphrase here, he basically says, who in the world do you think you are? What? How self-deluded are you to think that you are anything apart from the grace of God? Don't you know that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above? Don't you know that, that of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth? Don't you know that everything you have, whether it's the new birth, being born again, that's a gift from God. Whether it's faith, the faith by which you have been saved, it is a gift of God. Whether it's repentance, repentance is a gift of God. Sanctification is a gift of God. Holiness is a gift of God. The ability to understand and, and communicate God's word is a gift of God. If you have the gift of serving, if you have the gift of charity, if you have the gift of teaching, 
It's, a, it's because God has given this to you. The Christian life is, is all of grace. The Christian life is nothing but grace. Everything that we have is not deserved. Everything that we have has not been earned. It comes to us freely at God's bounty because of His love for us. And so brethren, knowing that and embracing that and living in light of that is what, what strikes at the heart of human pride. And if you know that and you believe that, then you, then you won't be puffed up against one another. That's what Paul is saying here. You know, real practically speaking, I wonder what would change in your life if every day you woke up and you took a moment to meditate on this verse. What do you have that you did not receive? That'll bring you to your knees really quick. And hear me when I say that humility and gratitude in the Christian life and love and peace and joy and unity and harmony all flow out of your grasp of this theological truth. It is all of grace. If everything that we have is of grace, there's no grounds for us to exalt ourselves above anyone else in the church because of our apparent weaknesses, strengths or weaknesses. And grace, when it's at work in the church, strikes that death blow to the division and rivalry that threatens the unity and harmony of the people of God. One theologian said, a theology of grace has a beautiful self-leveling effect in the church. It brings humility. It dispels boasting. And that's the point. That's what Paul calls them to. First and foremost, that's the ground of everything he's going to say. The rest of this passage and the rest of the sermon for today. A theology of grace and how it's absent in the life of the church And they need to come back to what has been written. They need to come back to the grace of God, which is the foundation of everything. Secondly, to a theology of grace, now it turns to expose the theology of glory. And by that, of course, I mean human glory. A theology of human glory, following Luther here. Um, Before we pick up in verse 8, I need to give a little disclaimer. Because 8, 9, and 10, um, we need to call it what it is. It's sarcasm. It's ridicule. It's a kind of mockery by the Apostle Paul. Some people are surprised to find this in the Bible and they try to work gymnastics around it to make it mean something else. Um, People are surprised, especially by a pastor figure towards the people of God. Um, speak this way. Uh, Others, though, on the other end of the spectrum say, well, Paul was sarcastic and he ridiculed so that we can use that speech anytime we want, Um, which isn't right either. There's some pretty harsh rhetoric here, but but you need to know it's not malicious. It's not hateful. And it's not intended to tear down. Um, Paul's trying to appeal to their sense of shame. You know, sometimes we need to be shamed. We do. You know, uh, sometimes I'll tell my children, they hate it when I say it, but you ought to be ashamed of yourself. 
right? <laughs> um, sometimes we need to feel a sense of shame. And, you know, the prophets would speak like this all of sometimes in regards to uh, Israel's love for their idols. They would mock the idols. They would mock the Israelites who bowed down to, to a statue, a piece of wood. Um, so there is a place for this, but at the same time, it doesn't give us free reign to mock people or ridicule God's people whenever we want. So often that kind of speech can be harmful and even sinful. So we need to be careful. But what follows is irony. And Paul kind of contrasts how the Corinthians saw themselves with how the apostles were. Uh, look at verse 8. Already you have, be- you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul is using descriptions either of what some in the church were saying about themselves or at the very least what they thought about themselves, how they were acting. And there's this repeated use of the word already. Already you have become rich. Um, are you familiar with the phrase, uh, the already and the not yet? Another theological phrase. Theolo- theologians use this, the already and the not yet, to kind of distinguish how the promises of God and the kingdom of God are, are both a present reality, but still yet future. Right? They've begun, but they haven't been consummated. You know, we enjoy the forgiveness of sins right now, but our ultimate and final forgiveness will will be when our bodies are raised and we're given bodies that cannot sin. You know, we we enjoy the presence of God right now through the indwelling Holy Spirit, but there is a real sense in which we await that last day where we will see Him face to face and we will enjoy the full and final life in the presence of the Lord. We are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2. But... Really, our rule and reign in the judgment of the world, the full realization of that awaits the last day. The kingdom has already come in this age. Spiritually speaking, it's a spiritual kingdom, but one day it will be a physical kingdom. This is already and then not yet. And so I bring this up because the Corinthians were acting as though the already, excuse me, the the not yet had already come into the already. (laughs) That's a tongue twister. The not yet was already here. Already they have all they want. That's not the attitude of the Beatitudes, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Already have all you want. You've got no flaws. You've got no weaknesses. You have fully arrived. Already you have become rich. Rich in spiritual blessing. Rich in the sense that, oh, I guess the full and final inheritance has come to you. I guess you have everything now, and you're in need of nothing. Already you have become kings. Is there anybody better than you, higher than you? You rule and reign over everybody, apparently. And you do so even over us apostles, because of how amazing you are. That's what he's saying. That's the irony in this sense. The irony is twofold. They they acted as though they had become kings while the lowly apostles had been left behind. That's ironic. But the other irony is that they really weren't kings according to the standards of the world. 
They used the standards of the world as an evaluation when they wanted to, but not when, they, you know, when it was uncomfortable, basically. Paul even adds kind of wistfully at the end here, I wish that, that, that you did reign so that we might rule with you. He's kind of saying like, you know what? It kind of would be nice if you did reign because that would mean the end of all things is here. The end had finally arrived. They were boasting as though the full final reign of God had already come. And so Paul's just exasperated with this because they're acting so high and mighty and saying, you're just so awesome, aren't you? You're just so wise, so amazing. I wish that we could be like you. It would have been very humbling for the Corinthians to hear this read in their church. It's similar to what Jesus says to, um, I think it's the church in Thyatira in Revelation 3. Where he says, you see yourself as rich and finely clothed and in need of nothing, not knowing that you are poor and blind and naked. Self-deception. However, instead of us being amazing like you, Paul says, verse 9, I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. Paul wants them to see how absurd it is for them to think that they had begun to rule as kings. And here, with a sarcasm and ridicule, he appeals to the picture of uh, the gladiator. In the ancient world, uh, criminals and eventually Christians, the hated and despised of, the, of, of society, they were often paraded in a line in front of huge crowds, and then thrown to wild animals uh, to be torn in pieces while people watched and cheered for entertainment. That was their, that was their you know, national pastime in many respects. And that's the imagery that Paul appeals to here. He's saying God has made us as last of the last of the last, and we are like men sentenced to death in the gladiator ring. God apparently has made us a spectacle, a grand amusement, entertainment for the entire universe, including you who sit up in the stands ruling as kings and cheering on our death. That's what he says. Drips with heavy sarcasm, but, but rather, what a sobering picture of apostolic ministry. And really, ministry in general, uh, in, in many respects. Often the world, the world treats God's servants as the worst of the worst. And they, and they look on with laughter and with scorn. But Paul isn't whining or complaining. Uh, He embraces it. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Uh, If you're listening carefully, he's appealing again to the language that he used in chapter 1, verse 26. Remember where he said, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are noble or powerful, but God's chosen what is foolish and weak to shame the strong. He's kind of bringing out the fact that, you know what, they really weren't wise or strong or honorable in the world's eyes, but they were acting like they were. And they were judging others on that basis. 
They were living according to the world's standards, but they really couldn't live up to the world's standards. They boasted in their strength and their wisdom and their honor and, and, and a, a, an honor that even the apostles couldn't lay claim to. So Paul just wants them to see how ridiculous it all is, just how foolish it is, this theology of glory. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The way of the cross, the Christian life, is ridiculous in the eyes of the world. It conflicts at every point with the, the theology of glory that is inherent to man's sinfulness and the way in which this world works and operates. We need to see again, you can't wed these two things. You can't join them together. So in their criticism of Paul and in their favoritism of leaders, they were operating on the standards of this world. And when you contrast it with, with, uh, with um, the way of the cross, um, it runs contrary to the message and the redemption that God has wrought in Christ. Such is the theology of glory. Well, third and finally, let's work towards a conclusion here. We've seen a theology of grace, theology of glory, and now a theology of the cross. He finally turns and speaks directly, not with irony, but just directly about the facts in detailing the theology of the cross. What does true spiritual leadership look like in the church? It looks like verse 11 through 13. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. This is a great contrast. Paul drops the irony and he's saying, don't you see like what we face as apostles? Don't you see that all of your evaluations is so different than like day-to-day -day reality in the ministry of God's church? He says, to this present hour. Um, you know, he'd use the language already beforehand, right? So he's kind of really nailing this home. Don't you know what the present, the already looks like in the life of an apostle? We're poor. And we often hunger and thirst. We're inadequately dressed for the elements. We experience homelessness. That's what it means to reign as kings, doesn't it? And that's the irony. The Corinthians thought they reigned as kings because they evaluated things on the basis of the world, but the apostles actually did reign as kings. In a sense. They were sent by Christ. They're the foundation of the church. And yet they were poor and broke and homeless and naked and hungry. Don't you know, Corinthians, that our gospel ministry hasn't really brought us the fame and the success that the world accounts and values? Why is it so different for you then? He then mentions as well that the apostles labor with their hands. We know that from this letter later on and even in 2 Corinthians that that was a major point of contention between them and Paul. And there are many reasons for that. Um, Paul had the right to receive financial contribution from the church, but he chose not to. 
You might ask, well, why is that a point of contention? The church might be glad for that, right? Um, Well, on one hand, they judged Paul's motives for that. Like, are you trying to manipulate us? What's your real motive here? Is that why you, you try to tell us what to do? Because you think it's your right because you're not supported by us? But more specifically, it was a point of contention because in that culture, to labor with your hands was despised. It was only fit for slaves and those of the lowest class. You know, no teacher worth their merit would ever labor with their hands. And, and if they did, that was proof that they weren't really a good teacher. And this might be like a you know, a scholar or a professor or even a local pastor working as a janitor or as a trash collector. And, you know, the people in the church are embarrassed because of how the world sees that. Oh, there's our pastor collecting trash. That's kind of what's going on here. And that's why Paul mentions this. I labor with my hands. I do this willingly. I do this for you. But also, it's just a representation of our lowly estate. We're not kings. We don't have all that we want. We don't have endless supplies. Things that we need in life. He then turns to the moral issue of of suffering. Um, Towards the end of verse 12 and into 13. We are reviled and we bless in return. Which is an echo of our Lord's teaching. Pray for your enemies. We are persecuted. We endure. Again, teaching, uh, uh, echoing the, uh, the, the life of our Lord Jesus. We are slandered. And in response, we entreat. That means we answer kindly. Um, Christ on the cross, blessing those who curse Him. Christ, 1 Peter 2, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten Paul says, and then concludes by saying, we've become and still are like the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. We still are. This is the already. And I'm going to pull from from the deepest, um, like most demeaning and despicable of all images, scum and refuse, filth that needs to be washed away, the nasty dirt and grime of the earth that really the earth needs to be cleansed of, essentially. In other words, he's saying the world thinks that we're only fit to be put to death for the betterment of society. So this gap between your esteem of yourself as rich and kingly and the reality that we faced, it could not be greater. Brother, this is the theology of the cross. And this is where we can bring this to a conclusion. The theology of of the cross includes not only embracing the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ for your forgiveness and eternal life, but a theology of the cross also entails embracing that the way of the cross is what God in Christ has called you to walk in as well. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. All who seek the wisdom of God must turn away from the wisdom of the world and must be willing to be accounted as fools for Christ's sake. You must be willing to be accounted by your friends, 
by your family, by your classmates, by your coworkers, by your colleagues, by those in your community, as fools for Christ's sake. And yet, the promise is in the not yet. The already is the cross. But though we suffer and we endure in this present age, as we heard earlier, we are assured that these things are not worth being compared to the glory that awaits. And that's then what this passage challenges us with here today. On a personal and individual level, are you going to make peace with the world? If that is your endeavor, you have no share in Christ in the kingdom of God. Or are you willing to take up your cross and follow Him? To be accounted fools for Christ's sake. On a corporate level, are you going to evaluate the church and her leaders and her ministry through the eyes and esteem of the world? And thus all, always, inevitably disappointed, be disappointed, trust me. And thus always leading to division and rivalry. Or are you, will you cling to God's Word and not go beyond what is written? Are you going to view yourself and others through the lens of self-assurance and self-esteem and self-will and self-powerment? Or will you bow your knee to grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin, grace that, that brings that Leveling the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level because of grace. And we stand on equal plane with one another. And, and we are not to judge and be harsh towards other people because they sin differently than we do. Because they don't meet our standards for the Christian life. Because they are weak where we are strong. Because they don't have gifts and graces that we so highly value. This is what this passage calls us to. And this is what hits at theology of glory, theology of cross, but also the very essence of worldliness. We often think it is, yes, drinking, dancing, smoking, cussing, all the things of the world that we account as worldliness, movies, music, like sensuality, and that's, all of those things are true in some respect. But ultimately, worldliness is looking at this life through the evaluation and lens of things physical and temporary and the opinions and values of this world. This calls us to have a theology of the cross, which is the theology of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the mind of Christ Unless we be self-deceived to evaluate things not according to this world, but according to the age to come. Well, brethren, this is the call of this passage, but this is also our hope. And I, I leave you with this, our hope. Our hope is that your present circumstances, no matter how excellent they are or, or how terrible they presently are, your present circumstances don't define who you are. 
And they don't define God's love for you. You might be weak and poor and homeless and foolish. Right? You might be sentenced to death and slandered and considered the scum of the earth. But if you're in Christ, you are kings because of Him. If you are in Christ, you will receive your full reward. If you are in Christ, God loves you and is working all things for your glory and His good. And that's the hope it leaves us with. Not to live by our circumstances, but by the promises of our God in Christ. Well, may God give us the grace to hear and receive these things today. Let's pray.